or you can just pretend like you're listening and um, write your own notes. And um, how's the baby, Caitlin? How's the baby? Good. Good. I noticed it's the first time David has prayed for uh, children not yet seen. I don't know if you noticed that in his prayer. Um, <laughs> no, I understand that, but we've had others who have not yet been seen. He's never prayed that way before. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're uh, continuing in Ephesians, and we're going to finish chapter 2 today. And um, this is about Jesus removing the tension between Jews and Gentiles and for the body of Christ to be one. Um, and before Jesus came, Jews and Gentiles just, they did not get along. Um, they were kind of like a couple of political parties we might know about today. Um, with probably the same vehemence, um, you know, because Jews considered Gentiles to be beyond the saving power of God. So the Jews thought the Gentiles were unsavable, uh, that the Gentiles had no hope. Gentiles, on the other hand, resented the Jews for the claims of their position and their superiority based upon their heritage. Just because they were the children of Abraham, they were God's chosen people, they had the promises of God given through the covenant of Abraham and Moses. So there's this tension, and you know, Paul is writing uh, to uh, people who do not live in a Jewish town. Ephesus is not the, a hub of Jewish activity. And yet there is dispersed throughout this entire region in this day and this age, Jews and Gentiles alike. And, and it's interesting to me that Paul, as he writes, he's writing to Gentiles who live in a Gentile city, but who feel inferior to the Jews, even though it's not a Jewish city. It's not a Jewish place. And so the the... And Paul's whole point, and I can sum up the whole message today, whole teaching, is, is this, um, that Jesus came and revealed the total sinfulness of both Jews and Gentiles, and then he offered salvation to both of them. And that would allow us, or the only Jesus who can break down walls of prejudice, walls of whatever the, the, the separations are, and... Um, <laughs> And here's the reality. I mean, I grew up in a generation that um, there are a lot of songs about love. Um, Dionne Warwick, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. The Beatles, All You Need is Love. The Beatles, Give Peace a Chance, or, or John Lennon. And here's the reality. None of that is possible without Jesus. In, in fact, Jesus said that there would be dissension among families uh, before he returned, and those types of things must happen in order for him to return. And so this whole thing Paul is writing is about there can only be reconciliation one way. There's only one way to, be com to bring complete, total rec reconciliation between enemies. 
um, and that is Jesus, period. And so let's jump in, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And now he's writing to Gentiles, so he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he basically starts out and talks about, addresses the thing that you, you remember when he wrote to the Galatians, the Judaizers had come in to the Gentiles who had been saved and had told them, look, you can't be completely saved unless you become a Jew. And the only way you can become a Jew, and, and everything went through the men at that time, the only way you become a Jew is to be circumcised. And so Paul, again, is dealing with this issue of Jews feeling spiritually superior because they were of the circumcision and seeing Gentiles as inferior and referring to them as the uncircumcision. So that's why Paul's writing what he says. So God's work of reconciliation is not only between God and the individual, but it begins here with, with a larger group of people. It begins with groups of people who are at odds, which at this writing happen to be Jews and Gentiles. And so the Gentiles are kind of in a desperate place, even though they're part of the Roman Empire. As far as the church is concerned, as far as relationship with God is concerned, the Gentiles um, are not only spiritually dead, um, but they didn't have the access to God that the Jews had because of God's covenant with Abraham and the law that the Jews would keep. And so... Um, so before coming to Jesus, Gentiles, in a spiritual sense, in relationship to God, according to Jews, were Christless, which is true. They were friendless. They were hopeless. They were godless. And so because of that, Paul says, because you were Christless, because you were friendless, because you were hopeless, because you were godless, basically you guys had no hope. Uh, you know, and no hope in the face of death is is actually found if you go back and you read uh, Greco-Roman literature of that time and the Greco-Roman epigraphy, which is stories that are told in pictures. So if you look at the stories told in pictures and you listen to the writings of that time in the, in the Greco-Roman culture when Paul is writing... Um, but God changed all of them. Everyone felt like they had no hope in the face of death. But God changed all of that through Jesus. When Paul writes to the Romans, he addresses that specifically. He says in Romans 5, 3, and 5, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint. So going from hopelessness, he's telling them they have hope, and here is the source of our hope. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
So one of the reasons you and I have hope is that we had to come to that moment when God, by his Holy Spirit, poured the love of God into our hearts, and we recognized that without him, we are hopeless, but because of his love, we have hope. And that's what Paul's saying. In fact, 1 John 4 says, you know, and this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us, gave his son as a propitiation for our sins so that we might become the children of God. And so having no hope, they are without God in the world. Now, here's the thing. There are people, and we talked about this last week, there are people who believe in God. Some people do believe in God, but they believe he lives in heaven and he has nothing to do with what goes on in life here on earth. And um, so in that way, a person can still believe in God and not have God in their lives. Um, I'm always questionable of these surveys that they take of how many people are Christians and how many people believe in God. And God is such a generalized term for so many people. Um, and, and so we, we need to recognize that um, just because someone believes in God doesn't really mean anything. In fact, we talked about this last week. The Bible says even the demons believe. So it's, it's not enough to believe in God. You have to have a relationship with God through Jesus. And the only way that happens is to recognize the love that's been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit because it is love that draws us to Christ. It's not condemnation. It's not fear of hell. It's not guilt. It is the overwhelming, the all-powerful presence of God's love in our life poured in by the Holy Spirit. And that's when you, when you come to Jesus, that's what we call conviction. The Holy Spirit, yes, convicts of sin, but what convicts us is the power and presence of true love in our life and, and the understanding that all of a sudden there is a place for us to have hope. And so Paul goes down this list. He lists five things that uh, the Gentiles are without. He says you're, you're, they were without Christ, which, um, you know, and they're terrible words because to be without Christ, he says there's four more things. To be without Christ means they're without citizenship. Um, they're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Um, there's no spiritual blessing without light. Uh, without any promise, they're strangers to the covenant of the promises that God had given Israel. And when you have no promise, when you have no hope, you have no peace. You have no rest. And he said they're without hope, which means they're without safety. They're hopeless. Life has no meaning for them. And finally, without God in the world, they don't have a prophet. They don't have a king. They don't have a priest that speaks into their life. And so when he talks, and, and this fact of being aliens from the commonwealth, um, it, it, it includes, it doesn't just include Gentiles, it also includes Jews who are not practicing faith in God. Remember when we went through Galatians, when we talked about the righteousness of Abraham and those who are partakers of the righteousness of Abraham, that Paul writes and says, there are many Jews among you who are not partakers of the promise of the righteousness of Abraham. And that's because they didn't keep the law. Just because they were Jews by blood didn't mean that they automatically received the promise of the righteousness of Abraham. And so when Paul's writing this, knowing that there would be Jewish believers to read this as well, so he wasn't separating Jews from Gentiles when he talks about the commonwealth of Israel. 
um, you know, there were Israelites outside the commonwealth that were also considered foreigners, foreigners because they were lax Jews. They, they lost their part in the covenants, not as foreigners, but as people who are unworthy because they just didn't recognize God. And so then Paul goes and says, that's who you are, but I have good news for you. And, and understand, he's writing this to believers, so he's rehearsing in their lives what they've already accepted, reaffirming what they already know, but also recognizing that this church in Galatia is not a big building in the middle of town where they all would come on Sunday morning and park their camels and go in and, and then go home and have pot roast. Um, it was house churches. It was community. It was neighborhoods. It was communal. And so there was always the probability and the possibility that there would be people in that home who had yet to embrace the love of Christ. And so when Paul writes this letter, knowing it's going to go from home to home to home to be read by many people, he wants to know that uh, when he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Gentiles had to embrace Christ's sacrifice, which all of us in this room, as I look around, have, have done. The covenant sacrifice of Jesus' blood took Gentile believers who were without, who were far from God, and through the work of the cross joined them together with Jews in the new covenant. So this is Paul's point of this part of the letter. The blood of Jesus brought Gentiles into the covenant relationship with God that Jews had as well. And the only way you could have the true fellowship of the covenant of Abraham was through Jesus. So Gentiles were now grafted in to enjoy the promise through the new covenant, and they're included as heirs and all the promises that God gave to the Jews. And so these Gentiles who are now in Christ, they're no longer far off. They're no longer aliens. They're no longer foreigners. They're no longer strangers. Um, they're, they're made near to the things of God by the blood of Jesus and his sacrificial death. Um, I have a, uh, a friend, and a number of friends in Australia. So when I say I have a friend in Australia, I'm not talking about it, Reuben. So I have another friend. His name's Ken in Australia. And Ken follows the teaching of a man who passed away in 2009. Um, but this man who believes that the church has overemphasized the blood of Jesus, that the blood of Jesus does not bring salvation, and goes through this whole thing of, of twisting scripture around. And because, this, because Ken believes this so strongly, um, he has a hard time fellowshipping with people who pray because we're praying for the power of the blood of Jesus to be manifest in people's lives. And so Paul's making it very clear here. The thing that brings Jews and Gentiles together, the thing that unites them, is a sacrifice that was made forever. And that sacrifice was made by the blood that Jesus shed. And so coming near together, the Jews and the Gentiles can only come together and be one through the blood of Jesus. That's why when, when we enter in into the presence of God, God looks at us as if we have walked through a veil of blood. 
It, we enter in through the blood of Jesus, and it's the blood of Jesus that makes us clean, that makes us righteous, that allows us to approach God. And, and without that, God is unapproachable for us because God cannot fellowship with anything that is unholy. God cannot look upon anything that is sinful. So when we come in through the blood of Jesus being washed, as Paul says, washed by the blood of the Lamb, we enter into the presence of God as righteous. God sees us. When we enter through the blood of Jesus. God sees us as he sees his son. That's why he says that we call him Abba by the spirit of adoption. Um, my two adopted grandchildren, they are just as much grandchildren to me as the ones who were born by their mothers. Um, Alina and Isaiah, there is, we, we see no difference between them and the other three kids in their home. And their mom and dad don't. And even though uh, Alina knows she's been adopted, she doesn't fully understand adoption, but Isaiah does because he remembers the stuff he went through. They fully embrace the fact that they've been adopted and by the spirit of adoption, when they call Lenan mom, when they call, um, what's my son-in-law? Gordon, that's my son-in-law. When they call Gordon dad, it's, you're my mom. It's not, you're my adopted mom. You're my adopted dad. It's, you're my mom. You're my dad. And that's the same thing that, that Paul says, by the blood of Jesus, as we enter in this new and living way through the blood of Jesus, by the spirit of adoption, we say, Abba. And when God looks at us, he looks at us in the same way he looks at his son. We are adopted to be the sons and daughters of the Most High. And so Paul is making certain that the Gentiles understand this because there are rumors all around. Um, you remember in Acts chapter 20, um, when Paul meets with the leaders of Ephesus, um, he was going back to Jerusalem for uh, Pentecost. He wanted to be there for Passover. He missed it. But he knew that um, if he took the boat and stopped in Ephesus, that he would have to say hi to everybody. You know, it's kind of like one of those things. I remember years ago, we had somebody in our church who got offended because one Sunday morning, I didn't say hi to them. And, you know, I probably don't say hi to a lot of people. I probably intimidate a lot of people. But they got really upset because I didn't say hi to them because they saw me saying hi to other people. And I think that's what Paul was thinking. If I go to Ephesus, I'm going to have to go knock on every single door. And I'm going to miss a door. So the best way not to disappoint anybody is to avoid everybody. But you remember, he gets to Miletus and he has second thoughts. And, and on a map from... Ephesus is here, Miletus is down here. It's a 68-mile journey by foot. It's a 38-mile journey by boat, and Paul's by boat. So for Paul to get to Miletus and say, you know what? I, I can't go to Ephesus and see everybody, but I'm never going to be up this way again, so I really need to talk with the elders of Ephesus. And so he sends for them from Miletus. So he obviously didn't text them or email them or get phone call them. He had to send a messenger, probably by boat, so 38 miles up by boat, gather the, the elders together, and then by boat bring them back down. And you remember in Acts 20, he talks with them, and he says, look it, 
um, I just want you guys to know that there are going to rise up among you wolves. People even who are already in your midst who are going to try and pull you away from the truth that I've taught you. And so when Paul is writing this, he's, he's in prison. You know, Paul has been arrested uh, because he's been accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish area of the temple. And it was a false accusation. And if you read history, he's acquitted this time. But so he's in jail. When he's writing the church of Ephesus, he's in jail. Um, and so he wants to make certain that these people, he's rehearsing things he's already told them, but he understands this. Because remember in Ephesians 1, um, he said, you know, I've heard of your great love for the saints. He's heard they have this great reputation. And we're going to find out in chapter 3 and verse 17. He says, I pray for you always because I know that you are rooted and grounded in love. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm praying for you to be rooted and grounded in love. He says, I'm praying for you because you are rooted and grounded in love, that you will know the depth, the height, the length, the breadth of the love of God, and that you will have greater understanding from what you're rooted and grounded in. And so, obviously, as he's writing, um, the church in Ephesus is doing well, but he knows some are going to come and try and dissuade them, try and persecute them, try and pull them away from their faith. So he, again, is walking out of foundation. He's already presented to them. And so he's letting them know it's by the blood of Jesus that they've been brought There's no Jewish feast. There's no ritual. There's nothing they have to do to secure their salvation. So he says this now in verse 14. He talks about how they literally are brought together with the Jews to comprise the church. It says, verse 14, For he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. And enmity is the tension of separation. Um, the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity, which he just talked about, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, and he's saying the cross is what put this enmity the separation between God and man to death. So Paul says, first of all, understand, Jesus is our peace. Uh, Jesus hasn't simply made peace between God and man, between Jew and Gentile. Paul says Jesus is our peace. So he's, he's not a peacemaker in the way that he brings two sides together and tries to get them to agree. He comes and he does everything that's necessary to be peace. And so when we come together in Jesus, we then come together in peace because he is peace for us. And so the essence of peace is dual. It causes the ceasing of a separation, but it also eliminates strife. It, it eliminates disagreement. It eliminates discontent. And, and peace means to be 
united with, as well as to bring an end to hostility. So he's saying, look, it, it, it's, Jesus is not a peace treaty. He says Jesus is the peace. It's, it's you come to him when you find your identity in him, just as the Jews who believe Jesus is Messiah find their identity in him, you then have peace because you have Jesus. And so he says, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. So the work of Jesus on the cross is salvation for Jews and Gentiles. Now, remember I said Paul was in jail. Here's, here's the thing. In the temple, between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, because women weren't allowed to be in the temple where the men were, were on the other side. There was this wall. Gentiles were on one side, Jewish women were on the other side. And so there's this physical wall of separation, which Paul is referring to when he says, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, barrier of the dividing wall. So there is this dividing wall. It's a wall of separation. And so as Paul is writing this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome. And the reason he's under house arrest is because he's awaiting his trial um, because he was falsely accused of taking, of, uh, by the Jews for taking a Gentile into the temple past the literal wall of separation that separated Jews from Gentiles. So right now, Paul is under house arrest, not because he's a Roman who's broken Roman law. Paul is under house arrest because he's been accused of violating Jewish custom, which, by the way, the wall of separation is not found in the law. The wall of separation was something that the Jews did so the Gentiles could come and hear the teachings of the rabbis but weren't allowed to come into the inner place where the Jews were. And so Paul made it clear that in Jesus there's no wall. The Gentiles no longer have to feel separated uh, from the Jews because the wall of separation is gone because the lordship of Jesus Christ is greater than any division, whether it's political, whether it's racial, whether it's economic, whether it's language, whether it's geography, whatever it is. And, and you know, fortunately or unfortunately right now, we have a great picture of what a wall of separation looks like um, in our country. There, there's a wall, if you didn't know, there is a wall of separation in our nation right now. And, and here's the reality. If both sides would come to each other through Jesus, that wall of separation would be removed. And, well, I'm not even going to go there. But that is the, the depth of what we see right now, what we experience right now, I mean, literally from my own personal position, I have certain shirts and hats that take a certain position, and I will not wear it in public, you know, um, only because I don't want to put up with whatever comes. Um, somebody asked, and I, I spoke at a, at a men's conference yesterday, and, and somebody asked, um, would you put a bumper sticker on a Lamborghini? And um, of course the answer was no, because a Lamborghini. <laughs> well, the question, the, the, the answer was, 
Nowadays, I wouldn't put a bumper sticker on any vehicle because that vehicle would be in danger. And, and <laughs> okay, so everybody has a Lamborghini they want to give David. Um, go for it. Um, just make sure you look at the maintenance cost before you get it. Um, yeah, so, but that's the type of separation that had been taking place in it with the Jews and the Gentiles at the synagogue. And, and that's the type of separation Paul says, look at now in Jesus, Jews can't say that you're a dog and you can't say that they're a bunch of spiritual bigots um, because there's no longer a wall of separation. Because of the blood of Jesus, that wall has been removed. And he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commands contained in the ordinances. So the source of contention between the Jews and the Gentiles from the Gentile point of view um, was that which Jews had a bunch of really weird religious practices, which I suppose if you stood on the outside and watched and didn't fully understand, you could think that they were strange. But what made it worse was the Jews took those practices and lorded them over the Gentiles, declaring themselves to be spiritually superior. We have a relationship with God, and God has given us traditions and ordinances and, and feasts and all to practice to honor him, and you can only do it if you're a Jew. And so there is this, this enmity between the Jew and the Gentiles. And so uh, the, the enmity Paul talks about was Jews towards Gentiles and Gentiles towards Jews. And it came to the same point of, of religion. The, the Jews had no respect for the Gentiles because they didn't practice the law. And the Gentiles had no respect for the Jews because they lorded the law over them. And so this enmity was between both of them. And Paul says the enmity was the law of the commandments. And so, and Paul says, look it, Jesus fulfilled the law. So there's no longer the law of commandments. They're going to cause separation and tension among you because now your unity is not made through the law. Your unity is made through the blood of Jesus and your personal relationship with him. So the, the, Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf and bore the penalty for our, our failure to keep the law. And as a result, we're reconciled through the work of the cross. And so he's letting the Gentiles know again. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus. So there are also Messianic Jews, by the way, in, in Ephesus, to let the Jews and the Gentiles know again, look at their guys, you cannot allow what used to be a wall of separation still exists because Jesus eliminated the, the, the wall because he fulfilled the law. So this wall of enmity that was between you of you don't like the law and you don't like them because they don't keep the law, that's gone because Jesus fulfilled the law. So now the commonness you have with one another, the fact what's removed that wall is the blood of Jesus and the work done on the cross. And he did it. Paul says, here's the reason that Jesus did that. Here's the reason Jesus died, to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross, 
Gentiles and Jews are brought together in one body. We call the church. And here is our unity in Jesus. He's saying your unity in Jesus is far greater than your previous differences. The unity you have in Christ is greater than that which divided you apart before you came to Jesus. And so he says what happens now in God, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. He says because of Jesus, we have a new race. We, we have a new people. He says, in, in fact, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, there, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So early Christians would call themselves the third race, or they would call themselves a new race because the Jews and the Gentiles were joined together. So they no longer identified themselves as Jews. They no longer identified themselves as Gentiles. They identified themselves as Christians, as followers of the way, and therefore they considered themselves to be a new race. And, and so... Um, it, it was, you know, Jesus brought them up to a new level to create a greater, newer congregation or, or a newer um, creation. And it would be like this. It would be like taking uh, the Gentiles who would be lead and the Jews who would be silver and you melt the two of them down and you pour them in a pot together and all of a sudden in that pot is gold. So the two have come together as separate, now come together and become more precious and more valuable together than they ever were apart. And that's why Paul's talking to them when he says, you know, you are, you are a new race, You're, you are a new creation, and because these people actually saw themselves as no longer Jew nor Gentile, but they saw themselves as new creations in Christ through the cross. And, and that's why Paul repeats the cross over and over and over. He says, you need to know you are a new creation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a new, create, a new creature. Everything's become new because of the cross, because of the blood that Jesus shed. When you look at each other, you don't look at each other as according to what used to separate you, the law. You look at each other now through the cross, through the completed work of Jesus, and that has made you a new creation. And that brings Jews and Gentiles alike. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in Ephesians 1. Paul says that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. And so God uses bringing together Jews and Gentiles into the church as, as a preview of his ultimate summing up of all things in Christ. Because there's going to come a day. Jesus will return. We will be with him in a new heaven and a new earth, and we will all be new creatures. We will all have, our identity will be the same, but the Bible says we'll have new names, but we'll recognize each other. But we won't be Jew or Greek or um, any, any race will be a completely new people, all one. And so we're getting a picture here right now as the Jews and the Greeks come together, the Jews and the Gentiles come together as new creatures in Christ. It's a precursor of the picture of who we'll become. Verse 17 and 18 says this, And he came and preached peace 
to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So when it says he preached to those who were far off and those who were close, again, he's referring to Jews and Gentiles. As far as Judaism was concerned, the Gentiles were considered afar off because they weren't blood Jews and weren't practicing the law. And the Jews, being of the promise of the seed of Abraham, were considered close because they were keeping the law. But even though those were far off and even though those were close, neither one was at the place they needed to be to have a perfect relationship with God. And so he's letting them know that, I, that when Paul says, I came and preached, I preached to those of you who were far away and to those that you were near because you both had to do the same thing. You both had to put aside the enmity. You both had to recognize the work of the cross. You both had to come to God through Jesus, confess your sin, realize the price that was paid for your sinfulness through the cross and the blood of Jesus, and therefore you come together as a new creation, a new creature. And that way, now, according to Paul and according to the Bible, one group does not have greater access than the other. Jews don't have greater access than the Gentiles. Gentiles don't have greater access than the Jews. Because they're a new people, they're a new creation. They both have the same access to God through Jesus. And so here's this picture that Paul paints of what it looks like now. He says, so then you are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of one and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God. And the two of you have come together. The body of Christ is a new race, a new creation. Therefore, you're no longer a stranger. You're no longer a foreigner. Because you're a new people. In fact, this, this word foreigner in the Greek means, um, from two words, means beside and to dwell, which literally means to dwell near. So the, the word denotes an alien who dwells in a new land as a sojourner has now become a citizen. We have a great picture here in our room this morning with this cute little girl over here on the left my left, who went through all this to get her green card. Yeah, I'm talking about you. <laughs> She's not paying attention until I say green card. She goes, oh. But because of that, she has gone from alien to the process of becoming citizen. And, and that's the same thing Paul is saying this. You're no longer an alien or a foreigner. You are now a citizen by the work of the cross and by the work of Jesus. So we ultimately, Paul goes on to say that as believers now, we become aliens again. We become sojourners again because this world is not our home. We have an eternal home. We have eternal destination. So even though they were once foreigners, now they come together, they're a new people. But now, because our citizenship is with God in heaven, and our eternal citizenship will be in a new heaven and new earth, we once again are aliens. 
We are aliens. We are strangers because it says specifically, you are, no, you are aliens and you are strangers because you are not of this world. So this world is not our home. So when Paul says we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and because we're one body, because we have the same access to God, we're all built upon a common foundation. We're not two separate homes that have a hallway that join us. We are one house being built together on one foundation, and the foundation of our faith was built upon the prophets and the apostles. And when we talk about the apostles here, we're, we're literally talking about the founding apostles. So we're talking about the original 12, and because Judas did what Judas did, Paul becomes an apostle. If, if you... You probably remember this, maybe you don't know it, but to be an apostle, the qualification of an apostle, uh, a part of your appointment is that you had to be a follower of Jesus and you had to see Jesus after his death and resurrection. Paul obviously was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was on the earth, but Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, according to the church, qualified him as an apostle. And... Um, he, after those apostles died off, the founding apostles, yes, are gone, but the gifts that we read about in Ephesians 5, which we'll get to, of pastor, teacher, apostle, evangelist, um, prophet, those five, those still exist today, just not as the originals. Um, and today, apostles, apostle literally means sent one. And uh, so apostles today are those who God has anointed for special leadership in communities, overseeing other spiritual leaders as they grow together. So when he says it's founded upon the apostles and the prophets, it's talking about the founding apostles. It's not talking about those who walk in an apostolic anointing today um, and those who lead the church. And then it says Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we don't do cornerstones anymore. We've, we've kind of grown a little bit in our, uh, we, we, for now, it's not about cornerstones. It's all about footings. If, if you've looked at the construction going on across the street, that big white monolith that's sticking up in the sky, that is a big drill. It has, it has a bit on it that's about this big around, has teeth that are like this, and it's simply digging down and digging down and digging down and going down into the bedrock, and they will then pour cement down to the bedrock, and then they will attach steel to the top of that. And so we could say that all of those holes, and they're drilling a lot of holes. Let me tell you, I'm hearing this thing going constantly. There's going to be a lot of footings going down to bedrock to make sure that this four-story community that they're building across the street um, never collapses. Early builders, the, the foundation was laid, but the building was built upon the setting of a cornerstone. So the cornerstone set upon the foundation was the, 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 the grabbing force that held, held it together. And so, and, and you see a lot of old buildings You'll go and you'll see the cornerstone. Bottom, usually it's the right-hand corner. There's something stapped on it. It'll be a date. 
It'll be a person's name. And that's established as the cornerstone. Everything in the building is built off of that cornerstone. And back in Jesus' day, they would put the name of a ruler, whoever the governor was, whoever the emperor was, when they built that building, set that cornerstone, they would engrave that person's name into it just to know that that kingdom built that building. And so um, <clears throat> it says that the, Jesus is the cornerstone, talking about how they built back then. It says, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So as we keep our common foundation, the whole building of God's people grows together in a beautiful way. And it's, it says a holy temple where God dwells in beauty and glory but this temple is not being built with literal stones. According to Peter, this temple is built with living stones. And that's what Paul's making reference to, that the church is a building perfectly designed by this great architect, the Holy Spirit. And it's not a haphazard, intermittent pile of stones randomly dumped in a field, but we're living stones who are joined together. Here's what Peter says. And coming to him as a living stone, Jesus being the cornerstone, a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built upon a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So... This tells us the church is to be both the living place of God as well as his people. That's why when we come together, when we show up, we say we're having church. It's because the church is us in two ways. We comprise the church as we gather together as living stones, but we also are the church because we are the place where Jesus lives and dwells. So we're the stones that build the house, and we're the house that carries his glory and his presence. And so when we come and we, we do what we do together, when we worship and we pray and we exalt the Lord, we are doing so as the house in which he dwells. We're doing so as his presence. And we serve as priests who offer spiritual sacrifices of our lips and our heart in praises to God, which is what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips changes his name. When we fully understand this, the picture changes. Here's the, here's the great thing. As a living stone, we are the house of God wherever we go, and so we can worship him wherever we are. But also, as living stones coming together... We comprise something that is mighty and powerful and not only ushers in the presence of God, but operates in the power and authority of the presence of God as a body. And we know this, you know, it's great to have an index finger, but index finger works a whole lot better if you have a thumb with it. And if you add a middle finger and a ring finger and a baby finger, you can grip and pick up a lot more things than you could with just your index finger. So even as an index finger that is a vital part of the body, when we come together as living stones, we're the whole body. 
where the fingers, where the toes, where the legs, where the arms, where the he's the head, where the body, when we come together, when we comprise this incredible thing called the body of Christ, comprised of living stones, which is the temple that he lives and he dwells in. So we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And, and here's the interesting thing. When Solomon built his temple, and, you know, I always felt like David, bless his heart. I mean, his tent was awesome. But David's the guy who raised all the money to build the temple, you know. And, then, and Solomon never had to fight one battle. He just got to spend daddy's money. Build this incredible house to God, which when he, when he dedicated it, it was a great day, but he also blew it on that day, prophesying when he wasn't a prophet. Um, but when, when all of that happened, um, when this temple was, was built, um, when he built the temple, they didn't want the noise and the clamor of construction, kind of like this thing across the street. So it tells us in 1 Kings that they would chisel and shape the stones far away from the city where nobody could hear it. Then they would bring them in and put them together to do the building. And that's how the body of Christ works. We, we, are, we are scattered all over the earth. And we are in God's quarry. And God is shaping each one of us to be fit together, to be brought together in this final eternal dwelling place called the body of Christ, called the church. And so the Father makes the choice of this house. The Son purchases it. And the Holy Spirit takes possession of it. And God's glorified. So, God's work in the church gave glory to the wisdom, power, and love of God. So, the work that God has done through Jesus in us does one primary thing, and that is it brings glory to him. It glorifies him. And we, we cannot forget that this glorious church... The bride of his son, there are so many things, there is nothing as this. And I could have made the list longer, but then I would have had more than four pages, and you would have freaked out. So I stopped at nine. Um, you can add your own list. But there's nothing as noble as the church, seeing that it is the temple of God. I mean, never lose sight of that. You are the temple of God. There's nothing so worthy of reverence seeing God who dwells in it. So once you are the temple of God and then you recognize the living God lives and dwells within you. There's nothing so ancient since the patriarchs and the prophets worked to build it. There's nothing so solid since Jesus is the foundation of it. There's nothing so high since it reaches as high as the heavenly place in Christ. There's nothing more beautiful and well-proportioned since the Holy Spirit's the architect. There's nothing more beautiful because it's adorned with building stones of every age, every place, every people, from the highest kings to the lowest peasants, the most brilliant scientists to the simplest believers. There's nothing more spacious since it is spread over the whole earth and takes in all who have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. And there is nothing so divine since it is a living building, animated and inhabited 
by the Holy Spirit. So this is who we are. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We have been bought. We have been purchased. And that's why I love looking around this room. We are all so different. All pretty good looking. But we are all so different. I mean, we come not, not only from different parents. Look at how many nations are in this room. Look at all the things that God has done. And as God looks at this, he just says, living stone, living stone, living stone, living stone. And these two fit really well together. These ten fit really well together to build this portion of my house where I dwell to bring glory to my name so that the day will come when I will return for a bride without spot or wrinkle. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us first, and it wasn't a, a conditional love in that we had to do something to earn it. We thank you that it was simply there by the blood of Jesus to say, come and take. And we thank you that according to your word, the Holy Spirit then poured that love into our heart to give us hope so that as we looked at our own worthlessness, we had hope because of the worthiness of Jesus. We are able to see peace. We are able to see hope. We are able to see life. And to recognize that as that love pulled us toward you, and we said yes to that wooing, that then as we walked in through the blood of Jesus, you washed away all of our sin. You made us righteous. You adopted us. You call us sons and daughters. And you use us as living stones to build this house with Jesus as our cornerstone and our foundation, where you, we are the building that glorifies your name comprised of a new race, a new generation, a royal priesthood. And we thank you for that, and we ask that we never forget it, that we are mindful of it every day. We are living stones carrying the glory of God because of the work of the cross and the blood of Jesus. And we thank you for it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.